Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I began practicing Zen in the early 70s in Hawaii and uh, began practicing psychotherapy in an informal way right around the same time, just about the next year or two. And those two streams have always been connected in my life, in my inner work, and in my practice. And I've always been especially interested in making the fruits of their interplay, Buddhism and psychotherapy, spiritual practice and growth and emotional development and growth, to make the fruits of that intersection available to people outside of the Buddhist temple and the consulting room. So I began with a cooperative nursery school that the Zen temple sponsored in Hawaii and then went on to develop programs for high-conflict divorcing families, uh, youth in the juvenile justice system, psychotherapists who wanted to learn more about the intersection of Buddhism and psychotherapy, and then finally in the last eight years, many, several thousand returning veterans and their families, children, and caregivers, and creating venues or environments which um, are healing and create new opportunities for learning and transformation. And uh, the element that I feel is often neglected in these mm, experiences is the element of community. We, we know it as sangha, but I'm going to describe to you today something much more specific than the wonderful, close feeling that you have when you sit with other people and how Sangha, a community of unconditional love and compassion without judgment, creates really the foundation for amazing transformations of some of the most resistant traumas we know about, which are war traumas. So through our nonprofit, uh, the Coming Home Project, which is a community service of Deep Stream's Zen Institute, We've served almost 3,000 returning Iraq and Afghanistan veterans from every state in the Union over the last seven years through a series of residential retreats for individual veterans and also for veterans and their families and kids and also for their caregivers, helping them with post-traumatic stress and all the panoply of injuries that they bring with them, emotional, spiritual, I'll tell you about. And even though I've been practicing Zen for a long time, teaching it for 25, 30 years, and been a psychologist and psychoanalyst for also going on 35 years, uh, I learned a tremendous amount. And I want to share with you some of that excitement of what I learned. Obviously, in Buddhist practice, we know the role of suffering, and we know that uh, our objective is to be liberated from suffering and to help other people along the way to be liberated from suffering. Uh, but I learned things about trauma, which is a subset of suffering, which is mm, not really dealt with very much within, within Buddhist practice formally. There are a lot of other approaches which are Buddhist-informed, and our approach is too. But we don't focus quite so much on meditation itself as the impact of compassion in action in creating a compassionate, mindful community of safety. So war is, uh, like, like all trauma, war is a great teacher. In fact, it's the element out of which wisdom, the lotus grows, in the heat of the fire, it grows out of the mud and the garbage and the pain. Right? War is a great teacher if we can learn from it. Uh, 
I've been listening to many stories of war and the people who tell them, and I want to share some of their stories, some of their anguish, and some of their growth. And I want to talk about repair, redemption, acceptance, and, and transformation. And I specifically want to talk about turning ghosts into ancestors and unpack what that means. Our traumas, if we're not able to face them, become ghosts. They haunt us. They block out the present. It's as if we're living in a continuous movement that doesn't have a past, a present, and a future. And we're really hijacked. Our awareness of the present moment is severely compromised. But veterans can transform war trauma in the right setting, turn ghosts into ancestors, and by that I mean into usable memories, memories that can inform their life and redeem experience which has been very, very painful uh, for them to bear. And if, if they can do that, then so can all of we. So can all of us, individually and collectively. One of the first things I learned uh, was that war is a little bit like an IED blast. IED meaning improvised explosive device. You may have heard that this is these kind of bombs that have been developed during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, which spew shrapnel, but they're also very powerful and they have shock waves that go out in multiple directions. In fact, they're omnidirectional. They can bring down buildings. War trauma and all serious trauma is a little bit like that. It works through shock waves. It doesn't just affect the individual. It's not just a psychiatric problem. It's not just an anxiety disorder which can be cured, like getting a bacteria and then you have an antibiotic to help you eliminate that bacteria. War affects everybody in all directions, all at the same time. And even if we don't think we've been affected by war, we think again, and we have. Some people like to say, well, Iraq and Afghanistan, that wasn't done in in our name. That's not being done in our name. But actually, all of us are affected by it because we're all part of the same community, the same human family. And so what I've learned is that when these shockwaves of war radiate out, they dismantle connections, critical connections which are part of our humanity and capacities to, to process, to think, to feel, to be, to actually manage and process trauma. So war trauma not only compromises and not only presents us with experiences which are overwhelming, which we can't deal with, which have to be dissociated into a kind of dissociative fog of war, just in order to continue to function. But war trauma also dismantles the capacities we need to process that trauma. So it's kind of like a double whammy. And the process of healing involves repairing some of those capacities to reflect, to think, to feel, to be, feel safe, as well as getting to the place where some of the original trauma can surface again. I like to say that trauma can't live with it, can't live without it. The can't live with it part is that the capacities we need to process it have been dismantled. The can't live without it part is that there's an incredible adrenaline rush related to trauma. There's a sense of aliveness, actually, that that many veterans speak about in the battle zone, that sometimes they come back stateside and and they miss it, even though it's tortured them. There's a certain sense of aliveness in war that we at our retreats try to help them find in a civilian setting so it's not quite so dependent on the, uh, the fear of death. So the connections that are dismantled that we work to repair 
happen at a number of levels. They're within the veteran, so connections between body and mind, heart and soul. Connections within families. Guys and women come back and, you know, oftentimes the bonds between them and their family have been severely compromised. They're not the same people, and their families aren't either. So some of those connections have been fractured. The connection between families and communities oftentimes is compromised as well. And even within communities, there's fragmentation that goes on. We see it in the Veterans Administration and the military hospitals. You've heard about some of the scandals and whatnot. The people who are treating war-related trauma are affected by the trauma too because it happens through these shock waves. And if they don't recognize it, then, then they can begin to create organizations which are dysfunctional and which create more trauma. War trauma also affects our leaders and their ability to make good decisions about how to solve problems. And my, what I've learned is that if we don't find a way to work with trauma at every one of these levels, individual, family, community, collective, governmental, organizational, then we just perpetuate the same traumas because they're never really faced and dealt with. You know what the meaning of dukkha is? I've learned another meaning of dukkha, suffering. Uh, and that meaning is difficult to face. Difficult to face. Suffering is often difficult to face, and war trauma, very, very difficult to face. But in an environment of unconditional compassion, non-sentimental love, without any judgment whatsoever, just welcoming people completely as they are, there's a psychobiological reaction that people have in an environment like that. They start to ratchet down their anxiety, their hypervigilance, they start to feel more comfortable. And gradually, the truth comes out. Their own truth is able to be articulated. And there's a process of transforming what was a shameful ghost that's haunting you into a memory, an ancestor that you can actually work with. Let me just give you an example of how this works. At our first retreat in 2007, which was at First Congregational Church. How many of you know Berkeley First Congregational Church? It's a beautiful space, absolutely beautiful. We had about 250 people come for a community meeting on a Friday night, and then we had a weekend retreat with about 40 vets and their family members and kids from all around the country. This was our very first retreat. We've had about 30 of these since then. And at this first retreat, we, we gathered in a circle, and there were a couple of young kids. They were playing outside at the margins of the circle. One of their names was Ben, and the other was Isaac. And uh, they were kind of chit-chatting, and then I invited everybody to enjoy a moment of silence and remember those people who couldn't come for whatever reason. And about 15 seconds into this moment of silence, Ben says to Isaac, my daddy died in Iraq. And I thought, out of the mouth of babes. I mean, this is just unreal. And everybody heard it. This is the first words that were ever spoken at our retreat, aside from, let's take a moment of silence. And I began to see that if the environment is right, people will feel, begin to feel safe enough to represent something that they may not actually be in touch with until they start feeling safe. And then it can have a chance to be transformed. Before that retreat, people were gathering out in the outside our workshop room and two guys had been seriously physically injured, Rory and Ken. Both had had one in an IED blast, the other in a ricocheting bullet around the inside of his Humvee. And one's wife and the other's mother wanted to get them together because 
they felt that they would enjoy meeting one another. And so I'm sitting at about 20 paces from these two women who are introducing their family members to one another. And they can't see very well because their, their heads were blown up and one lost an eye, one you know, had his vision compromised. But they wanted to connect and they got really, really, really close to one another because they couldn't see one another. And then they could see one another and they took each other's hands completely spontaneously and they traced the tracks of their wounds with one another. And they were describing how they got injured. You know, can you feel this, this, that? And I'm looking and I'm saying, people really want to connect. They want to find someone who's been through something similar, who gets it. Because the other connection that's broken is when they come home from the war zone, unless they remain on active duty, they don't have their buddies around. So they've got to hep two and get involved in their work and their family life, you know, sometimes within a 36, 48-hour turnaround from the time they were in the war zone. And you can imagine what a, what a whiplash that would be, sort of a psychological whiplash. So finding a community of fellow veterans, fellow spouses, fellow kids who can feel comfortable with one another, very important. Let me give you another small example. Rory was one of these vets. He he wore a patch. He was blown up on his 21st birthday and he lost three of his buddies uh, in the blast. And he he was really really pissed. He was really pissed. He was pissed at our government. He was really pissed at at, at our leader, pissed at his leaders in in his particular company. Um, And was just just angry and, and not in a very productive way, just angry and the traumatic brain injury had contributed in some ways to his not being able to really modulate his anger or really make good use of it. And he started off in a very dismissive way. He'd been dragged there by his mom and and stepdad. Uh, And he said, only a vet can understand another vet. I don't know what I'm doing here. Just angry kid um, who had about a third of his head in plastic filler, you know, and sort of ceramic, which had filled in the places that had been blown away. Well, at the, at the end of, at the end of our, our first day's workshop, he came over and we approached each other and, and he said, looked at me up and down and he said, eh, you're all right. And, and we hugged. And I noticed that he had thrown away these, these papers. And I picked up the papers and I said, are these yours? He said, ah, it's nothing. I said, well, let's take a look at it. And I unpacked the crumpled paper. And I, on the paper, there was a fa- three family trees. And he said, these are all the people who've been... who been blown away, I thought he said, been blown away by my buddies. But he really said, who were blown away by my buddy's death. These were the families of his buddies, and he knew all of them. And, and I thought again, look at what happened to this kid. He was completely angry, rejecting of anyone who's not a veteran, I'm a veteran of a lot of things, but, but I have not served in a war zone, although my father served in World War II. It had a tremendous impact on me. I learned more about that as I got involved in Coming Home Project. But by the end of the day, he could talk about his, his shock and grief about the deaths of his buddies, and about how it affected all of these families that he knew. And we had made a bond. And we, we've continued this bond eight, eight years later. We talk all the time. He lives up in Seattle. We talk about the Seahawks and you know, about life and fishing and hunting, even though I don't fish and I don't hunt. But we, we've got plenty to talk about. The 
before I tell you about the details of, of, of turning ghosts into ancestors, how it actually unfolds in a very reliable way, I want to give you a feel for the activities that we do at these retreats. The first thing is, is we have large group meetings. And I have been shocked at having, you know, like upwards of 100 people sitting around in a circle or two circles, the degree of intimacy that develops when people feel safe, when they feel that they can really share. And then we have small groups, support groups, not therapy groups, but support groups, where the only rule is that you have, if you speak, you have to speak from the heart. You can't try to fix anybody else. And otherwise, you just listen. You bear witness and you listen deeply. Those are the only two rules. You can't interrupt anybody. These small groups, we do male vets with male vets, female vets with female vets, kids with kids, spouses with spouses, so that you're in a group with someone who you don't have to start from scratch. You have a sense that they, they, they get where you are. Then we have wellness practices like meditation, qigong, yoga. People really like qigong because you don't have to sit still. You, you may know that, that some people really find it hard to sit still, like I used to. And part of the reason is because you know, you're afraid that if you really let go, something might just come up and wh- whack you upside the head. You know, trauma might just come up. So it actually can be very threatening for some people. So sitting meditation, walking meditation, I've learned a lot about customizing the meditation for the particular person. Qigong is good because it's awareness, it's movement, uh, it's uh, uh, bodily sensations. The third or fourth element is expressive arts. Writing is one, but uh, ceramics, beading, using your hands, singing, dancing. It's a way of expressing what's inside and a way of connecting and feeling alive. And doing a vigorous exercise in the, the great outdoors. So we have these retreats at very beautiful places off the beaten path, which are relaxing and healing in and of themselves. And we do things like rafting and kayaking. And I remember our first kayak uh, expedition, this one guy who had had a lot of problems with his wife. He was a Marine who had some serious post-traumatic stress. Uh, was kayaking across Tomales Bay, which you might know from Heart's Desire Beach to the town of Marshall, where we had our retreat. And, um, and when he got there, he had won this kind of impromptu race. And he said, Joe, I feel so high. And I said, that's great. That's the good high. And he looked at me. What do you mean the good high? I'm, I just feel high. But you know, he was getting high on lots of stuff and, you know, beating up his wife and yelling at his kids. And he, in this retreat, he had the experience of feeling alive without having to get that adrenaline rush through angry outbursts or through driving his Harley. We cultivated four qualities at the retreat. One was a sense of aliveness because that's compromised a lot in trauma. Again, either, you know, there's a shutdown after trauma and you don't have access to a basic sense of aliveness or you're trying to recapture the adrenaline rush by riding motorcycles and jumping out of planes and getting drunk and doing dangerous things. So aliveness is a basic human experience. The second is bonding, creating opportunities for vets and their families to bond because in the war zone, under the threat of death, they, they, they bond with their buddies. And when they come back, sometimes it's sort of like, my family? Well, who's that? My kids? Well, we'll just go back to the way it used to be. But the kids have changed. There's not an ability to adapt to the new situation. The third element is regulation. And I'll talk about that when we get into turning ghosts into ancestors. The ability to regulate emotions. We're learning now that meditation, who would have thunk it, really helps us regulate emotions. (laughs) 
You know, we've proven this through research. And then the fourth element we address in the retreats is meaning and purpose. You, you may or may not know, but a lot of men and women volunteered to serve in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to capture those people who were responsible for 9-11. And when they got especially to Iraq, but also to Afghanistan, they realized, hmm, there's not a lot of that search, searching going on. There's, you know, our mission was really different. So there's a sense of betrayal that can happen around well-meaning intentions. And, and guys and women can have crises of faith and crises of meaning. So again, retreats give them an opportunity to rebuild sense of meaning. Those are the five activities. Those are the four qualities we try to create. You've heard this phrase, PTSD. We know a lot about the PTSD that is an anxiety disorder, characterized either by psychic numbing or hypervigilance, sometimes you know, intrusive thoughts, sometimes difficulty modulating emotions, insomnia, you know, being on a sort of quick trigger. You've heard about it. You've seen about it. This is the psychiatric anxiety disorder, which is very important to recognize because you know, this came out of the Vietnam War. Before that, you know, veterans, you know, World War II veterans, Korean War veterans rarely talked about their experience. There wasn't a category to talk about it. So it's a good thing to talk about some of these sequelae of combat. But first of all, PTS, PTS post-traumatic stress, is not, a, is not a disorder. It's not a psychiatric disorder. It's the body, mind's normal, usual way of coping with impossible-to-process trauma. This is so critical to, to get. Because if, if we get this, if we get that these guys and women are in situations that are completely impossible, and they carry on the mission despite multiple, multiple experiences that would flood and disable anybody else. Well, where do those experiences go? They become dissociated. They become compartmentalized. But here's the thing about post-traumatic stress and why it's not a psychiatric disorder. It waits in the psyche for what? It waits for a safe setting in order to be represented and transformed. This is the remarkable thing. So when research studies come out, you know, that, that purport to be able to eliminate certain symptoms or even certain memories, I feel that we all deserve a good night's sleep. So if something can help us sleep, something can help us feel more composed, more peaceful, Symptom reduction is important. But the idea of sort of stealing memory so that you no longer have a memory, that seems kind of dangerous to me. And then I learned that, again, post-traumatic stress, the kind that's been dissociated away, not just the anxiety disorder, the experiences that were you know, of dukkha, mega dukkha, too much to face, are waiting in the psyche. And they naturally arise when we feel safe enough. Safety is the psychobiological trigger for all of this. It's, it's just remarkable. i give you all the data on this. We, we published you know, research results in an APA journal, and I wrote a book about it called Waking Up From War. There are some cards for the book on the table, and I was delighted that His Holiness wrote the foreword for the book. So... We learned a tremendous amount. So how does this work? Well, let me tell you about Bob. Bob Rodriguez was, um, is a former CB. CBs are Navy, Navy guys, also some women, I think mostly guys. And they build stuff. So they go in and they build the forward operating bases called FOBs. They put up the wires. You may have heard of fobs and then wires. You're either inside the wire or outside the wire. But just like Marines and, and cooks and everybody in the military, they're not, they know how to shoot guns and they know how to do everything, just that they're mostly the builders. Well, Bob was one of 15 male vets 
in a group, male vets group that I was co-facilitating with a Vietnam vet friend of mine. And uh, we were talking about, everyone was talking about their experience. And Bob said, yeah, oh, I go zero to 60 in 10 seconds, and I'm just, I'm just off the charts. And then the next guy said, uh, oh, I go from zero to 60 in about eight seconds. And then the next guy said, I go from zero to 60 in about four seconds. And here they were comparing notes and sort of joking about post-traumatic stress, the anxiety disorder, the dysregulation disorder, the brain, the heart, the mind, dysregulated, documented. The parts of the brain aren't talking to one another. We can't control our emotions. They could talk about that. There was stuff they couldn't talk about. This is the other side of post-traumatic stress, what are now being called moral injuries, things that guys and women did or saw or countenanced or were not able to do that tremendously clashes with their own internal moral compass, and they couldn't do anything about it. It was just part of what they had to do. They were helpless to change it. And you know, helplessness is one of the signatures of, of trauma, that you can't fight, you can't flee, you can't do anything to change it. And it completely clashes with your own internal sense of what's right and wrong. So let me tell you about Bob. So finally, during this retreat, he told us about what was really bothering him. And it wasn't just the anger. That, that, was, that was a big part of it. It was that every night from the time he got back from Iraq, every single night, he had an experience which cannot be classified really as a dream or as a nightmare or like the psychiatry books do as an intrusive thought. I've come to call them a night visitation. So he would, he, every night he'd wake up in a cold sweat and he'd be seeing, looking through the sights of his rifle at a young Iraqi child who was outside the wire of his operating base while he was on guard duty. And he was looking through the sights and he had his finger on the trigger. And as soon as he was about to pull the trigger, the face of the Iraqi boy would switch to his own twin boys. And he said, oh my God, I can't pull the trigger. And then it would switch back to the Iraqi boy who looked like he had something around his waist, which could have been a, a bomb. And he'd just wake up in this incredible moral dilemma of, you know, if I don't press the trigger, my guys on the base can be hurt. If I do press the trigger, I could be killing someone innocent, just like killing my own, my own kids. But he, he wasn't thinking about it. It just, it just flooded his life. It was haunting him. It was a ghost, preventing him from sleeping, preventing him from feeling at ease. Now, by the time he got to be able to talk about this, he was already feeling better, some sense of relief. Guys like him and women like him, and the, for the women, a lot of the experiences they had were around military sexual trauma and the sense of helplessness to do anything about it, the rage that goes with that. But many women were also in combat and had situations like Bob. Instead of being shamed and guilt-tripped and ripped by the community he was around, as he spoke about this, People just listened, and they listened with open hearts. They listened with love. And he had a tremendous amount of emotion around this because it turned out he did pull the trigger, and he did kill this boy. And he never knew because they, you know, somebody else picked up the boy's body, his minder or something like that. Never even knew if he had protected his guys or not. And he was just eaten away by a moral conflict, which manifested as this ghost. I could give you other examples, but I want to leave time for questions. So let, let me actually just, just 
break down what the process is that I've learned about turning ghosts into ancestors. We know that we need to have some capacity. So the first stage, really, is capacity building, if you will. Those people who work in organizations, you know that phrase, capacity building. Meditation is one way of building capacity, sort of bandwidth, ability to face what's difficult, dukkha. And people at the retreats would do this through meditation, but they would do it in other ways that just was shockingly reliable and much stronger than their meditation. First was nature. They just arrive. And the beauty of the flowers or the birds or the streams already beginning to ratchet down and thinking, hmm, hmm, maybe this is not a dangerous place. I think it probably is, but maybe it's not. And then they start sitting and talking with people who they feel congenial with, who get them. And they start to feel regulated by the community, like, I'm not going to be hurt. Because you think about it, I mean, this is not a neurotic fear. (laughs) They were living in the war zone. They're still living in the war zone. So they have to disconfirm this fear that even their own buddies, I mean, these weren't their buddies, but fellow veterans, are not going to turn on them, either physically or emotionally, and skewer them. So there's a whole series of R words, which are the stages of turning ghosts into ancestors. For some reason, they, they all begin with R. And they don't happen sequentially all the time. Sometimes just a few of them happen. And sometimes they happen in a slightly different order. But there is an elegance to them. And I think you'll, you'll be able to appreciate this. The first one is regulation. There's a certain sense of regulation that happens when they're in, let's just say, the small groups. The second is that they recognize themselves in somebody else's experience. Because there's, there's always some extroverted person or some person who's hurting more than the next guy who takes a chance and jumps in, put the, puts their foot in the water, tells their story. And you know what's going on inside the other veterans? They're saying to themselves, holy crap. He's telling my story. How could that possibly happen? I thought I was completely nuts. And that's what has been driving me crazy, is that not only do I have a lot of disturbances, but I feel nuts just to have them. I feel like I can't tell anybody else about it. And all of a sudden, he recognizes himself, or she recognizes himself in somebody else's account. And the somebody else's account is not interrupted. Because it's so easy to interrupt and say, oh, you know what, I'll, let me tell you about a time that I did this. Or, right? They're not interrupted. They're listened to. And they can really go deeper. The third step is that someone will take a risk. They have to debate whether they're willing to take a risk. And then they represent they represent something. They actually sometimes didn't even know that they remembered, but they were remembering it during this process. Or they knew it was there, but they were not going to tell anybody. Not going to tell their therapist, not going to tell their pastor, not going to tell, certainly not going to tell their spouse. Never tell their kids. And mostly never tell their buddies because it would be a source of shame. They, they would appear weak. But in this setting, in a safe setting, they can re- represent it. And it may be through a poem, it may be through a journal entry, it may be through an image they talk about. It may be by just by telling the story, like Bob was able to tell their story, his story. And there's a certain expectation upon telling our story, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, that I'll be shamed, that it'll be a source of guilt, and that people will hate me, they'll think I'm a monster. Not to mention unreasonable, irrational fears that it'll get back to my commanding officer or my VA official. I'll lose my benefits. I'll lose my... I'll somehow be stigmatized and ostracized. I remember a group of guys saying, happy wife, happy life. 
I just need to keep my wife happy. And I knew that wasn't really true. They were really scared that if their wives knew what they had done, what they had felt, that they would be considered monsters. Wives would never sleep with them again. These are the fears that people deal with. And when they tell their story, they're terrified that they're going to get slammed. But, lo and behold, they don't get slammed. They look around and they see loving faces really getting what they're saying. If they start to emote, which often happens because the next stage is re-experience, right? represent and then you re-experience the feeling. And then with, you know, with full emotional accompaniment, whatever that is, grief or terror or helplessness or anger, and the group doesn't react, doesn't, it can, can contain it and allow the emotion and look around again, the person's fear is disconfirmed. So rather than getting skewered, they're loved, they're welcomed, they're accepted. And there's a kind of recontextualizing that happens and a re-encoding of this experience which heretofore had been a ghost, which had been waking them up at night which had been an alien substance sort of stuck inside of you, keeping you from living, a, a dissociated but, but somewhat known aspect that you knew you had to face sooner or later. And what starts to happen is that this ghost becomes a memory, becomes a bad memory. It's not a good memory. But better a bad memory, better a memory than something that is depriving you of your ability to live and to connect. And what is the outcome of all of this? What is post-traumatic growth? Have any of you heard of this phrase? This is a phrase that's gotten a lot of play in the military and the VA. Everyone wants to sort of tout the growth that comes from trauma. Well, you know, it doesn't come cheap, does it? <laughs> you know, resilience is the buzzword. Boy, if I hear that word again, you know, I'm, I'm going to just gag. You know, the idea is that somehow we can create a tef- Teflon soldier or a Teflon person, and, you know, and then we'll have plenty of people to go do, you know, do our needless wars with. And, you know, they'll be like the six bionic woman or the six million dollar man it, it's just so sad it's so so shameful but there is something called post-traumatic growth and i've seen it hundreds of times folks come into our retreats you just see their body language and then at the end and i'll tell you a couple of stories about this their whole body language has changed everything has changed in their outlook and they tell us about just how different it feels. One said during our closing circles, this is how church should feel like. How church should feel like. So what's the fruit of going through this transformative process? Well, something that was haunting you is no longer haunting you in the same way. It's just not, because it's out in the open. It's been re-experienced, disconfirmed, recontextualized. You have a sense that you've reauthored it. It's become your trauma, not something inflicted from the outside. Reauthoring is very important. So what becomes available to you? The present moment. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's nothing really fancy. It's the present moment. It's like looking at your spouse or seeing your kid smile or being able to enjoy a hug with your, with your wife or your husband. Being able to work with some focus rather than being completely discombobulated. Being able to enjoy the tender mercies of life. That is what has been stolen through war trauma. That's what's been hijacked. It's not something fancy. It's just our human inheritance. So this is the arc of what I've learned. And I'll stop in just a moment. But the more that I think about this, the more that I see, 
This process is a human process. This is a completely organic process. We see it in psychotherapy. We see it in coaching. We see it in mentoring. We see it in AA groups. We see it in, you name it, we see it in relationships. In relationships, if we feel safe enough, we can really reveal what's in our hearts and and we're not slammed for it. I'll take a half a dozen of those in any setting I can get it. So when we came upon this, it was, just, it was just amazing. And, of course, the research results were incredibly reliable. So I'll close with just another very brief vignette. Uh, one retreat, we, we had a number of vets who had been blown up many times. And they love to tell you how many times they've been blown up. Eh, 20 or 30. And it, it's really true. Imagine, 20 or 30 IED blasts you've gone through. I mean, one would shake your brain up give you a concussion. So these are injured guys walking around on crutches with prostheses sometimes, but not always, just, I mean, physically, completely broken down. And this one guy, Bob, was a medic, and he, he went through a similar process to the other Bob, and uh, he, he uh, shot a boy who was throwing a, a grenade into, into the Humvee his buddies were riding in, and he, he just couldn't let himself off the hook for that because his sense of identity was he's a healer. He's not a killer. It didn't matter what anybody told him that he had saved his buddy, that he did the right thing, that they would have done. None of that matters. That's why we leave that at the door. There's no reassurance. <laughs> you, can't, you can't fix this thing. But he went through this process that I'm telling you about and he, you know, he had shared with us that all the physical injuries, they didn't compare to this thing that was eating away at him. Well, at the end of the retreat, he and a couple of other physically injured vets who could barely walk, after the talent show, we have a little dance, and they got up, some with, with crutches, some with canes, and they danced with their wives for the first time in, since their injuries. And their wives were like, what is going on? What, what's come over this guy? And to see this, it was just amazing. And I was talking to Bessel van der Kolk a couple of weeks ago. You may have heard of this guy. He's a famous trauma expert. We were at a program together at Omega Institute in, in New York. And he said, you know, I hear a lot about trauma and healing trauma and everything. But he says, I want to see it in movement. I want to see it in movement. I want to see people move in a different way. How they move in life. So I said, I told him the story of dancing. He said, yeah. Can you imagine dancing after being completely crushed, literally and figuratively, emotionally? I mean, for us, this was the the signature of a real transformation of accessing joy, relational connection. And uh, it just moved our hearts. And we saw this hundreds and hundreds of times. So... This has been a remarkable seven, eight years. Uh, Wrote about it, lots of stories in the book, and how this relates not only to individual vets and their families and their kids, but how this can happen in organizations and in leadership so that rather than repeating the same traumas, inflicting them on somebody else or some new country, we work with them. Like Barack Obama just talked, right? He talked about guns. How many people saw him cry? He talked about guns. Was that beautiful or what? I wrote his sister. I, I, I like his sister. We're friends. I said, boy, you must be so proud of your brother. But you see how he, can, he has access to the feeling. He's not dissociating it and, and taking it out on the next country. He's trying not to as much as possible. I wish he'd do more of that. But still, it's a wonderful example of processing trauma and using it to think clearly and to get something done that's benevolent rather than perpetuating the cycle of war. And we know we can do this in our relationships, right? We just perpetuate the trauma from generation to generation. Yeah. So this is about waking up from war. That's the title of my book. So thanks for listening, and I'd love to hear your comments or questions. Please. Uh, One sec. We want to get this on tape. Ready? 
Have you considered doing something like this for like young black men in our own community here, like Oakland, Berkeley, who go through witnessing murders and kind of the same, they get the same PTSD that a lot of veterans get? I would love to. I would love to. Um, in 2000, uh, I, I worked for four years with youth in the juvenile justice system in San Mateo County. And this is how I developed some of these ideas. I, was, I started out as a therapist supervising some trainees who were doing mental health groups with, with youth just like you're describing. And after the first session, I said, this can't be therapy. There's got to be more than therapy. So I started asking one question, which is, what really means something to you? What's the most important thing in your life? And, and nobody had ever asked these guys and women that question. And so that became our inquiry. That became our meditation. And we started listening to one another. And then we started doing meditation together as well. The combination of small groups plus meditation. And we could see them change. So I would love to work with um, black, Hispanic, uh, traumatized inner city youth and, and people. One of the most moving encounters I had was with social workers and, men and health professionals from Gaza, which is a war zone, right? Uh, who came to Human Rights Watch a couple of years ago in San Francisco, and I was invited to talk with them about similarities and differences between veterans' experience and the chronic kind of trauma of living in <laughs> occupied land, which is sometimes a lot like the population you've been describing. Chicago can feel a little bit like an occupied land. So you're getting my politics, I'm sorry. Um, but... Uh, and I made some wonderful connections with these Gazan therapists. And, and there was a lot of overlap, except with veterans, it's just a, a limited period of time, whereas with the Gazans, it was, it was chronic. Uh, there was no way out. I mean, there's literally no way out. And then I learned during the last Israeli uh, invasion of Gaza that my closest uh, connection, uh, his brother and his whole family had been killed in the bombing, and he was responsible for all of his nephews and nieces and all of this. And it was so personal and so real. So I tried to get into Gaza to help, and I, I learned that a guy named Jim Gordon uh, who was doing some work already, a psychiatrist does some holistic work, and he had a foothold in Gaza. But uh, this is applicable to a lot of different settings, working with chronically, cumulatively traumatized individuals. And I, I would love to teach and train in any setting. Other comments or questions? Got two over here. Um, I was wondering if you're still doing this work and how young vets might get in touch with you and the opportunity to experience this kind of healing. <clears throat> Alas, that's a, that's a sad story because um, although I raised about two and a half million dollars, uh, I couldn't raise the additional, say, five or ten or twenty that would allow us to become completely saturating the returning veteran family population, become the default program, which is what people said we should be. Uh, there just wasn't, the, I, I couldn't do it. I tried for two years. So rather than stew in my indignation, I decided to write a book about it and begin to make that book as a model available to other groups and teach and train other groups. So we haven't had a retreat in about 18 months. It was our last retreat. It's kind of sad. However, uh, Omega Institute is uh, sponsoring a retreat for veterans in the beginning of May and has brought us in. So I'm going to bring my team. Unfortunately, they only have funding for 25 male vets. Um, but that will happen the 5th through the 8th of May in Rhinebeck, New York. So anyone who's interested can, can check if they're in the area. Otherwise, we're not covering, Omega's not covering travel. We used to cover, cover travel. So we'd fly whole families into these retreats, and we made it really easy for them. So I'm hoping... I'm also teaching a workshop at Kripalu 
for providers uh, over the President's Day weekend. And I'm hoping that some of these organizations will want to sponsor retreats, do the logistics and the, you know, the fundraising there, and bring us in just to do the retreats. Um, we also got a phone call from the county of San Mateo. They wanted to do something for their vets and that they would cover it. That, that didn't come to pass, but um, I, I'm, I, I have no more energy for raising money, uh, but I have lots of energy for doing retreats and for training others to do the retreat. So anyone want to help with some connections? I love that. We applied for a, a $3 million VA grant. Clearly, we must have been in the top tier of the grants. There were only five, of the, five $3 million grants. We didn't get it. So um, Google was going to give us $10 million, and they backed out at the last minute. So we had like 10 of these things happen. Uh, the, the VA, for some, for some reason, and I've talked to VA people, they, they are haven't come around to see the benefit of our program. Although individual people in the VA, they know they, they refer veterans. We, we've gotten almost a thousand referrals from the VA, but they, they won't pony up the money. Uh, it's too bad. Um, there was another question. Yeah, I, uh, the work that you're doing is really wonderful. Um, I felt a deep sense of sadness and pessimism um, listening to your work with our vets. Um, because while you were talking about our vets, I was thinking about the Iraqi people. Absolutely. I was thinking about, as a scholar of the Middle East, I'm very close to that region, and I, I know that millions of people's lives have completely been transformed. Completely and when I look at the prospect of peace, you have millions of people who are completely traumatized. Millions. They do not have the resources that we have in this country to heal and to grow and to make sense of what happened to them. Uh, and they did not deserve what happened to them. No. Um, a lot of innocent people's lives have been completely transformed. And I do hope that someday you find a way to also get to those people and help them. I completely agree with you. And um, there's an organization in Marin which worked informally, I'm forgetting their name now, but they worked informally with uh, Iraqi refugees. And... Uh, She's a friend of my old Zen teacher, and we were. I said, "Look, you know, just tell me when and where I'm there, you know, because these." So it hasn't materialized yet. Um, and Gaza didn't materialize, but the need is there, and I hope and pray that there will be a time, just like in Vietnam, where American vets can return to Vietnam, build schools, go back to the scene of their battles, go shoulder to shoulder with fellow Vietnam, Vietnamese veterans of what they call the American War and heal the wounds of war. And I think it has to happen, inshallah, one, one day it, it will happen that American veterans and their families will go back and meet with Iraqi and Afghanistan, Afghani families, and make the peace. But it starts with us. It starts with each of us now, opening our hearts without being overwhelmed by it. I'm not saying that we should be overwhelmed by it. There is a sadness because it's so sad. But so, I'm big, I can contain sadness. I can also contain joy. I can hold all of it. Peace and violence, and if, you know, you know l l make me a, a messenger of thy peace, right? Make me, uh, so I can carry that and be a force for peace. And that means I have to bear the sadness. I have to. That sadness is where the love grows from. My heart is bubbling over with love that comes from the sadness. One of the vets used to say, he had a terrible traumatic brain injury, a Marine sergeant, master sergeant. And he, you know, he's goofing around and all kinds of stuff. The same stuff I told you about the guys in there. He's goofing around. I'm, I'm above you, Kenny. I'm, I'm above you and all the sexual innuendos and all of that. And, and then, you know, in the small groups he was talking about, about how incredibly hard it was to, um, to guide his troops 
because his mind wasn't the same. He had serious traumatic brain injury and how it affected his identity of who he was. And he would say this amazing thing about what we were just talking about. He said, when I'm in the groups, we're all crying. And then afterward, we're all laughing. And I go back to the groups, we're all crying. And then afterward, we're all laughing. And I said, yep, that's the way it is. Thank God for the laughter. Because it makes us able to, 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 to cope with the pain. And thank God for the pain because it makes us appreciate our buddies and the laughter and the joking that we have. And, and so we have to be able to hold it all. Well, thank you so much for talking about that. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? Comments, questions? One more? You have time for one more? Just a real quick question about, uh, I have a friend who was in Vietnam, so uh, much longer ago than Iraq. Uh, do you guys work with, or have you seen work with um, folks for whom the trauma is uh, far behind them in time, but still present and devastating? Uh, we have not worked directly with, with Vietnam era or even Gulf War era vets. We, we made a calculated decision to focus on Iraq and Afghanistan vets and their families and caregivers. Uh, we, we have brought in Vietnam vets who, who I know to be part of our facilitation team. Um, but we, we just made that decision and um, uh, it, it's worked out well for us. Uh, there are some Vietnam vets who are, feel neglected by some of the, the recent upsurge of surge, s- services for Iraq and Afghanistan vets. Uh, but that's just a call that we, we had to make. Uh, that was our focus. Uh, what do we do to close? Do we do anything? Do any chanting? No. Oh, some loving kindness. Okay. And we dedicate the merits, right, 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 right. So let's gather ourselves and settle for a few more moments together. Grateful for one another's presence. Live mammalian company. Safety. Let's become aware of how precious that sense of safety is and not take it for granted. Let ourselves relax into that safety. Gratitude for the depth and the richness that it allows us. Aware and grateful for this life, this beating heart this breath, this energy that still courses through us, grateful, awareness of how quickly life can be taken, of how quickly those we love go, how precious this moment is. May we be safe. May our neighbors be safe. May our enemies be safe. May we be vigorous. May we know joy and sadness and have the strength to bear both without pushing either away.
And may we taste and know the peace that passes all understanding. May we share that with everyone we meet, friend or foe, much as we can. And may we wake up all of us from ignorance and manifest this peace, the joy of being alive in everything we do. May all the merit, all the benefits that accrued from being together this evening. May all of those benefits redound to all beings in the ten directions, to all refugees, for all displaced people everywhere, survivors of war, survivors of ignorance, May all find safety, shelter, human contact, love, responsive love. And may we all grow and blossom together. Thank you, everybody.